Hello, it's Friday, March 11th. This is the Andrew Pierce Show coming as ever from the Daily My Newsroom. Coming up, emojis. Do you use them? If you don't, like me, you're in a minority because nearly nine in ten of us use them a lot and often instead of words. Covid. It's now less lethal than flu, but infections have risen to 50,000 a day. So did Boris Johnson take us out of lockdown restrictions too soon? Disinformation. Who can believe it? Russian state media broadcasts a TV programme where guests criticise the war in Ukraine, even though that is technically against the law. But first, the extraordinary decision to sanction Roman Abramovich and the implications it's having on Chelsea Football Club, which some people suggest could go bust in a matter of months. The decision to impose sanctions on Roman Abramovich, the Russian oligarch, is having huge implications for Chelsea Football Club. The billionaire can now no longer sell it. And as a result of the UK sanctions, strict limits are being placed on the club's spending and some sponsors are already deserting Chelsea Football Club. I'm joined now by Matt Gatwood, who's the Daily Mail's Deputy Sports Editor. Matt, it's a huge story because Chelsea has to be, what, one of the most famous football clubs on the planet, let alone just in Britain. Well, absolutely, yeah. It is a huge story, um, huge ramifications, um, which we're still sort of almost uh, trying to sift through uh, a day later because there's so many unknowns um, and so much to get into. But yeah, absolutely, Chelsea have become one of the biggest clubs on the planet, all because of the uh, Abramovich um, investment over the last 20 years. You know, if you go back 20 years, they you know, they weren't big players in the Premier League like they are now. Um, yes, they had won a couple of cups down the years, um, but they weren't. You know, they weren't in the sort of uh, in the top echelons of the league at all. They'd had a few relegations and a few promotions. Abramovich changed all that when he came in 20 years ago and pumped so much money and changed the face of the British game. And, you know, very few questions were asked at the time about where that money was coming from. I think we're all guilty of turning a blind eye to it. Um, whereas, really, it was out there for everyone to see that his money was uh, ill-gotten, uh, almost blood money, really. And now it's finally come back to haunt Chelsea that they've been in bed with someone so closely linked to Vladimir Putin. Uh, as, as I say, it's sort of shame on the game and shame on the Premier League uh, that it's taken a, a, you know, a Russian invasion of Ukraine. But that's where we're at. That's where we're at now. And now Chelsea are in chaos. All of Brentford's assets have been frozen, so the club is now um, almost in the hands of creditors to be sold. It's almost in the hands of the government. They will try and sell it, but they will obviously make sure that none of the proceeds go back to Abramovich, which is the whole point of freezing his assets. So now there's so many questions to be answered. So who will buy it? Will, will, the, will the interested parties who we knew about last week or before yesterday, will they still be interested? Now, there are suggestions that, yes, there's still interested parties out there, almost up to 20 interested parties who would still be interested in buying it. In fact, they may even see it, see it as a more attractive proposition now because they could get it for a cheaper price. But on the flip side of that, it's a almost a tainted brand now. And a lot of the, as you said, a lot of the sponsors are walking away. A lot of the players may walk away or a lot of the players may have to be sold. Yeah, there's lots of things up in the air, but that's where we're at at the moment. And what about this weekend, Matt? Can they, can they play their match this weekend? Because there was talk that they couldn't sell match tickets. They've closed the, they've closed the club shop and have been blocked from taking bookings for the Stamford Bridge Hotel. So will Chelsea play a Premier League match this weekend? Yes, yeah, so they will. They'll play their game this weekend. In fact, there's a good likelihood that they will play the rest of 
what the government don't want really is to grind Chelsea football club and, and into the ground. They don't want to sort of, you know, sort of finish the club. They're, they want football to carry on. They realise it's important to people, but they just don't want Abramovich to make any money for it. So they don't want money to come back into the club. So the game will go ahead against Newcastle, um, Saudi Arabian-owned Newcastle, by the way, on Sunday. Um, God, blimey. That, take yeah, your, take exactly. your pick there. So that game will go ahead. Bramlett on one hand. The only yeah. the, the tickets already sold will uh, will still be valid, and and that is true for the rest of the season. So if you're a season ticket holder at Chelsea, you'll still be able to attend the games because they're basically saying they've already been sold. You've already paid for them, so you can still go. What they won't do is sell new tickets so that more money comes into the club, and that's why they've shut down the merchandising arm so that the club shop is shut and online uh, sales of merchandise is closed as well. So you can't do any of that so that no more new money can come into the club so this lays open lots of questions for example like should Chelsea get to the FA Cup semi-final which is at Wembley obviously no tickets have been sold for that yet will we have a half full Wembley so one half of the crowd will be the team who are playing against Chelsea and the other half will be empty because Chelsea can't sell any tickets for that and that goes for all the other uh, competitions they're in for which tickets haven't yet been sold so um, there's talk of, well, maybe they'll open it up and give the tickets away for free to school kids or to other families or what have you. But there's lots of things to be worked out. There's lots of restrictions that have been put on Chelsea. So, for example, they can only spend 500000 on putting on a home game uh, and they can only spend 20000 on going to an away game. Now, Chelsea are currently in talks with the government about relaxing some of these conditions that are in this current licence because they say they're unworkable. Um, but the government... Uh, are sticking firm on some of them we believe and some of them there may be some scope for wriggle room but that remains to be seen as well so Chelsea Mets are playing in Lille next week in the Champions League and at the moment we don't know whether they're going to have to hitchhike there or whether they can go on a chartered jet so all these things still remain to be seen extraordinary because they are the champ they are the defending champions aren't they Matt they won the European yeah. Champions League hugely important to their revenues and to their prestige of course they'll want to defend that trophy and want to perhaps even retain it absolutely yeah and and there's all, all the other knock-on effects so in terms of the playing personnel so there's a few players who are out of contract at the end of this season now as things stand the club can't renegotiate new contracts because that would mean paying these players more um the other thing we don't know is how long the club can keep functioning as they are because they will lose match day revenue. They will already start to lose sponsorship money. For example, three uh, have walked away, suspended their £40 million deal. That's the shirt sponsors, isn't it? They have other partners, Nike, Hyundai, Zap, are all considering ending their agreement. Um, the Nike one's worth a staggering amount of money to Chelsea. So, you know, were these people, were these companies to walk away as well as the loss of match? day revenue would mean that they would almost struggle to pay their weekly bills in terms of players wages and keeping the club afloat so there's so much to sort out that's where we're at if these if these um, companies do walk away the club could find themselves in a position where they go into administration because they can't pay their their wages and if they go into administration there's points deductions which obviously could see them drop down the league before the end of the season. So that would mean they wouldn't qualify for the Champions League next season, which, again, would have a financial knock-on. So, yeah, it's a mess. That one is going to run and run. The ramifications now being felt by one of the world's most famous football clubs after Roman Abramovich was finally sanctioned by the government. 
So Russian state media has actually defied Vladimir Putin's propaganda edict and actually broadcast criticism of the war in Ukraine. Viewers of one of Russia's most popular talk shows heard Vladimir Solovyev call on Russia's president to end the attack on Ukraine. Remember, it's a sentence of up to 15 years to even call it a war in Russia. Disinformation has been a constant element of Russia's campaign against the Ukraine with the state media strictly controlled. Joining me to talk about this is disinformation expert himself, Dr. David Robert Grimes, who's author of The Irrational Eight. Dr. Grimes, how astonished were you to hear that a presenter of a pretty mainstream programme had the temerity to criticise the war when it's against the law now in Russia? I, I was certainly surprised. And, and again, this, this new legislation that they've brought in, uh, that even calling the war what it is, is technically punishable by up to 15 years in prison. That seems like a pretty open defiance of it. I'm not entirely sure whether that was, I mean, again, there's an argument that could that have been staged or could that be stage managed? And we can't speak to that for sure, but it's certainly a powerful moment. But I think it's also important to realize that even as that is happening, Russian state propaganda is still pumping out on the usual channels. Just yesterday, the, uh, the embassy in London, which is one of the few Twitter outlets that Russia still have, was pumping out disinformation about the maternity hospital attacks, whereas Chinese state media was reporting the Russian Minister of Defense as stating that uh, US-funded biolabs in the Ukraine were responsible, essentially, for creating coronavirus. So in some ways, it's still all the usual kind of Russian tactics. But that one act of defiance is certainly curious, yeah. And of course, Facebook and Twitter have been blocked as much as they can by the Russian state because social media wasn't around when the Soviet Union waged its war in Afghanistan. And social media, of course, is very difficult to censor. It is. But I mean, that's a, that's a double edged sword for the Russians to some extent. They have massively benefited from using social media to push this information. In fact, no one in the world has done it better. Uh, arguably China are a little bit behind them on that, but Russia have been world leaders for a long time. And that has allowed them to uh, be very insidious in their tactics. So yes, they are putting these channels off as much as they can now, but in some ways they were the greatest beneficiaries of these channels. They're talking this morning about cutting WhatsApp and Instagram as well and declaring Meta with the parent company of Facebook um, um, an enemy actor. The only problem with that is then it, it creates a, a situation where actually Russian disinformation forces have less vectors from which they can spread messages to. So ultimately, I can't see how that in the long term from a Russian standpoint will benefit them. And that's a decision they have to weigh up. On On the one hand, is it better to um, shut it down completely, which means we don't get our message across? Or on the other hand, is it better to keep it open so they can get their message across. They've clearly concluded, Dr. Grimes, that it's better to um, risk nobody seeing what's really happening in the war in Ukraine. I think you're probably right there. And that could go back to what you mentioned at the very beginning, the, uh, the, the, the talk show host openly criticising, which is incredibly rare in Russia. Um, and that could be a sentiment that, that Putin himself is afraid of internal revolt. And there's great dissatisfaction in Russia at the moment for the average person who, who probably had wanted very little to happen or didn't want a war at all is suddenly having massive impact on their own lives. Uh, they're experiencing that. And maybe he's, for the first time in his entire regime, 
feeling an internal pressure. And maybe that's why the internal censorship has been stepped up. It's very, very hard to know right now what the state of play is. But all these options are still entirely possible. I think we'll only really realize what is going through Putin's mind with the events of the next coming weeks. And what is anything can the players against Putin do, the European Union, America, NATO, Britain, can we do anything to try to get the true message into Russia? And if so, how would we do it? Well, it's going to get increasingly difficult, particularly if things like WhatsApp and, and Instagram get shut down. Um, that leaves you Telegram and emails as pretty much your, your, your only ways of getting in. But I think what's really important to note is that America in particular have played a bit of a blinder on this one. Because one of the things they did at the very beginning, less than three weeks ago, we still had Russia absolutely decrying the very idea that there would be an invasion. And American intelligence, with obviously the blessing of Joe Biden, did something very unusual. They released their internal intelligence showing that Russia were planning an invasion and were planning to stage an attack to justify, to give them a pretext for moving into Ukraine. The fact that America had the foresight to do that and to release that report actually allowed European nations and other nations in the world to rally. And also, it, it, it stopped the disinformation that Russia were really hoping to get out of this. So they've kind of been on the back foot from the beginning. And I think that's why you keep going. You keep pre-bunking and debunking and just refuting their message at every opportunity. And I think that's the only thing that can be done. And so far, for the first time, I think, in a long time, America played their hand on this very, very well. Well, that's good to hear. That's uh, Dr. David Robert Grimes, who's author, of course, of The Irrational Ape. Thanks for joining us. So the experts are now saying COVID-19 is now less deadly than flu in England. It's because, of course, the Omicron variant's milder nature and because of high immunity rates from the successful vaccination programme. Official figures now show a rise in infection rates, however, with the country averaging 50,000 per day. Joining me now is um, Paul Hunter, Professor in Medicine at the University of East Anglia, who is an expert in infectious diseases. Professor Hunter, is this virus now behaving exactly as you expected after we'd learnt pretty early on that it wasn't going to be anything like as deadly as Delta? Well, yeah, I mean, I think nothing behaves exactly like we expect at any time in the pandemic, but it's not unsurprising. I think this recent increase of cases was uh, expected because underlying the daily figures for most of this year, there's been a fairly consistent increase in the BA.2 subvariant, and that is still increasing. And of course, whilst that was relatively small number of cases, we were still seeing total cases falling. But now that this variant or subvariant is dominant, clearly that would was going to push infections up. So I think. Um, I think it, it's not unsurprising that we are seeing cases rising now. There appears to be no concern from the government. Um, they seem to be content that despite the fact we're up to 50,000 cases a day, it was 35,000 on so-called Freedom Day in late February, and some hospitalisation has been rising. The death toll is not any is not significantly higher, Professor. Yeah, that's right. But you, you don't forget it takes about three weeks or so after cases change before you see any impact on deaths because you know um, you get ill um, you get the infection it takes about a week for you to get quite sick and then it can take a week or two weeks before people die so I think um, at the moment 
um, we're still seeing deaths falling, and I hope that continues. But um, it is certainly, sadly, likely to be the case that if this rise continues, then we will um, see that decline reverse at some time in the next two to four weeks. Some people thought the Prime Minister relaxed the restrictions too soon. We know that um, Professor Whitty and Professor Valance, uh, Dr Whitty, Chris Whitty and Professor Valance, um, were not entirely enamoured of what he did. In your view, it, was it still the right decision, Professor? Uh, I think, I mean, ultimately it would have been the right decision. I think it was not the right decision to uh, lift those restrictions in February. And, and I think... You know, this is a, all respiratory viruses tend to spread most readily during um, autumn, winter than they do during spring, summer. And the point that I made at the time was that actually if we'd waited until the end of March, which was the original plan, we would be in a time of the year when these sorts of viruses spread much less readily and therefore it would have been um, less um, pressure on infections at that point um, but you know we uh, the government chose to go early for whatever reason and and um, you know we we now have to live with that what we all have to be aware of of course is um, omicron came and is still with us and will be for some time what's the likelihood is it possible to say that a new variant would emerge that perhaps could be as serious as Delta? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's a number of issues here. And the first is that actually, to a large extent, although we, you do see differences in the virulence of viruses of the different variants, most of the change in hospitalization rates and death rates that we've seen is, is more to do with immunity than it is with, with the virulence of the virus. Whereas earlier on in the pandemic, it was more to do with the virus because very few of us were immune. And that immunity comes from both vaccine and actually from a prior infection. And we know that a prior infection, once you've recovered from that, and clearly some people don't, gives you better protection against future severe disease than even this uh, boosted vaccine. And, and that's now quite clear. So ultimately, how we will come uh, to terms with this virus and live in balance with this virus is because we've actually had infection um, uh, once or twice or more often and and that when we do get it ultimately most people will just have a fairly mild illness but that's not necessarily because the virus is any less virulent in itself it's because you know you've got pretty good immunity from both from vaccine and perhaps even more important earlier infections just finally, um, the, the advice was you, we no longer have to wear masks uh, So on public transport shops and things. I still wear my mask on the tube. And if I'm in a shop and lots of other people are, are wearing a mask, I do the same out of politeness. What is your view about masks, Professor? Do you think people should still wear them? I, I think some people certainly should. And, and I think the uh, masks do reduce the risk of picking up the infection um, when you use them in a crowded indoor environment. They don't totally stop uh, the risk, but they reduce it. But actually, even perhaps more important, what they do do is that, and there's uh, quite some evidence for this, that if you do wear a mask and still get infected, you've been exposed to less virus, and then actually you get less sick. And so, you know, if I, if I 
uh, was in a vulnerable category if I was um, older than I am now uh, and I'm in my mid-60s or if I had an underlying medical condition, I would still be religiously wearing face coverings whenever I was in an, a crowded indoor environment. And like you, um, I tend to put on a mask when I see quite when I'm anywhere and I see quite a few other people wearing masks as well. Or when I go into a shop and the sales assistant's wearing a mask, I will put mine on out of courtesy to her or him. Very interesting. Paul Hunter, Professor in Medicine at the University of East Anglia. Thanks for joining us. A new study remarkably shows almost nine in ten Brits 87% 87% are happy using emojis than talking in person. One in 10 would also prefer to end a relationship with a GIF, which is a short, looping animation. Samsung polled 3,000 Britons and found that GIFs are regularly used by 81% of us to express emotions. Well, someone knows all about this world is Professor Vivian Evans, who is a freelance language communications expert, and he says it's all because of smartphones. Professor Evans joins me now. Um, Professor, this story astonishes me. I've never used an emoji in my life, so I'm probably an unusual species. Right, you perhaps are. There seems to be a reluctance amongst over 45s to to embrace visual communication in the, the digital medium. But actually, the better way to think about it is what we do in everyday communication. So if you think about just for a second, taking a step back from GIFs and emojis and so on to how we interact on a face-to-face basis, actually 70% of um, uh, our communication relates to emotion. And that 70% is conveyed largely by, not by language per se, but by gestures and facial expressions. And that is essentially the, what emoji and GIF are giving back to digital communication. They're replicating something we're already doing in our daily lives. So even over 45s who tend to be uh, more reticent in terms of using emojis and GIFs in uh, the digital sphere, use facial expressions and gestures happily. Imagine not being able to point, uh, not being able to smile or wink at people. Imagine how you would convey irony in everyday spoken communication without an eye roll or a grimace. It's, it's now impossible. And all that's going on in, with smartphones and, and digital communication is we're adding back something that is otherwise missing in that new form of communication that we're using on a daily basis. So GIFs and and emojis aren't something in a way special or weird or unusual. They're simply adding something that was previously missing in digital communication, which we use anyway in everyday spoken encounters. Um, So in a sense, it's technology catching up with what we as humans do anyway. Isn't it a sense as well, though, that GIFs and emojis are replacing words Uh, well they can replace words uh, but that's also what uh, gestures and facial expressions do anyway in in spoken interaction let me just give you a an example imagine you're at a, a dinner party and a friend offers you a glass of wine and you'd want to accept this glass of wine and what you might do to show how much wine you want is you put your your fourth finger and thumb to get together to signal the amount of wine Now, that is an instance of a gesture replacing language. And in a sense, it's no different to use an emoji in digital communication in the same way. This is called the substitution function. We do it all the time. We point at things in a baker's shop. 
that is substituting for the words. I suppose so, yeah. Um, it's, um, and do you think it's a good development? Your communications and language is your world. It's, do you approve of the way we're using emojis and GIFs far more than we were? Um, well, it basically makes us better communicators, more effective communicators. Communication, basically, the, the, the crux of communication is establishing emotional resonance with someone. You know, so there's, there's this old kind of uh, adage that a, a decision in terms of job interviews is decided within the first few minutes. And the, the research tends to bear that out. And that's because we make instant emotional decisions about people we have what, what we call a gut reaction to someone a feel that's not based on what they actually say they might be competent but before they've even had a chance to provide the content as to why they might be the best person for the job we've already made a decision that's what we do as human beings communication is built around empathy uh, which is the ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes emotion is key to that and that what is what emoji enables us to do in digital communication and i understand from this survey this uh, professor that happiness and love are the most commonly expressed emotions via emojis and gifs. that's correct i mean 70 percent of the world's global emoji and gif usage relates to emotion and over 50 percent of that are positive emotions which should with especially with all the news that's going on at the moment should bring us some solace at least i think there are 10 billion gifs in circulation that's a completely mind-blowing figure yeah two million are sent every day 10 billion available 81% of Brits use gifts on a regular basis. Some of these figures are, are staggering. Brits are sending four gifts a day on average. So, Professor, how many gifts do you send a day? I would say I would send around a dozen a week. Um, so a little over one a day, I would say. Um, what's also interesting, I think, as, a, as an aside, is that the use of smartphones and gifts and so on, but smartphones, smartphones themselves, which really are the driver of, of all this, are actually changing other aspects of how we communicate. Gesture is an important form of, of communication. But one of the things that I've identified in my research is that uh, if, you, if you, someone like myself, maybe yourself as well, if you were to signal that you're going to phone someone from across a room, you're, you're parting, say, at a at an event and you say, I'll phone you. Someone like me, what I would do, I would make a gesture using uh, my, my thumb and my small finger and put them against my ear. Young children, uh, young people today, just put a flat hand against their ear to signal they're going to make a phone call. Isn't that interesting? It's really fascinating, all of this, actually. It's, it's, it's a whole new world. <laughs> I suspect I'm still not going to become part of it, though, Professor, because... Um, I don't even know where to find an emoji on my smartphone. It's never too late. I've never really looked. never too late. Somebody's got to be a Luddite professor. We can be the minority in the survey. Really interesting. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. That's Professor Vivian Evans. Uh, fascinating survey. And talking of fascinating, he's got a new book out called The End of Sleep. Well, that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back on Monday. Have yourselves a great weekend and good night. Good night.